0: Or listening to the theology mom podcast and now here's theology mom krista bontrager welcome to all the things i am monique dusan i'm krista bontrager also, also known, known as, as theology mom everywhere yes welcome today we have quite... and this is the show where oh yeah this you know what i'm just jumping right on in it, and right over here you. let me read that this is the show <laughs> where we discuss all the things related to god life and the bible Yes, we we and we talk about it from a historic Christian perspective. Like, yeah, we try. Yeah, (laughs) things that are happening in today's culture. Yeah, from a modern, I mean, a historic Christian perspective. I just maybe I'm not ready. Maybe can we start again?
1: (laughs) This is live television, my friend. Well, there's that. Hi, people. (laughs) (laughs) So, helping us on the show today is the professional button pusher, Mr. Wonderful, and. Emily's home from college. Yay. Woo! She's monitoring our sound today. And then Abby's behind the scenes getting some publicity pictures for us for the website. Woohoo, there's the wave. There it is. It really is a family affair here at the Bontrager house on Saturday nights. And um last week we were dark on the on the set. We didn't have a show. Uh you and I had just both kind of had a challenging week. Yes. <laughs> and had a Multiple things happen, so we appreciate everyone's forbearance with us. But we do want to remind everyone, if they haven't yet, check out our show on transhumanism. Yeah, with Dr. Fasrana from two Friday Saturdays ago. Two Saturdays ago, that's right. And we had some discussion about transhumanism, which is sort of the next level of human evolution. It's like becoming bionic. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, tolerance. Yeah. Yes. Well, we talked about tolerance. Yeah. And our culture's view of tolerance and what it means to actually tolerate something. Yes. It was good. So find out what it means. Go check it out. Yes. So go check out the replay. Uh, you can catch all the show notes there up on my website at theologymom.com slash all the things
0: all the things that yes. is us and if you have any questions or comments you can also feel free to email us at attlivestream at gmail.com yes we yes. love
1: hearing the feedback on the show and how it's blessing people it's really nice to receive those those comments and messages people can also chat with us right now in the live chat if they're on youtube they can just go to the live chat box if they're on facebook they can put Uh, note in the comments and yeah we will be trying to weave those into the show as we go along and then
0: last well the last time we were on so two saturdays ago i said that if people would follow me on twitter i would post more so i've received some additional followers i'm up to 13 yes (laughs) yes yes i'm up to 13 and i have made some more posts one of which we'll talk about later (laughs) it's tweet of the week yes the tweet of the week the
1: real Monique D.
0: Yes, you can find me on Twitter at the real Monique D. I'm not really on social media aside from that, but you know, I will work my way there. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about today's show. All right, you ready? I hope so. Okay, so we are going to talk about worldviews. And not just like how I think of the world or how you think of the world and um, things like that, but how kids are actually taught to think about the world around them in light of culture and all of those things. Like, how do we teach the Christian worldview to our children? And are we teaching the Christian worldview to our children?
1: Yeah, it's uh, something that seems to be sometimes more caught than taught, but we want to also be intentional about it. And let's face it, Christian parenting is hard these days. Yeah, Uh, we live in a hostile culture. We live in really challenging times where the the culture is um, not exactly reinforcing most of our values as Christian parents. So how can we have those conversations with our kids about what it really means to be a Christian and see life uh, from a Christian point of view? So we're going to talk to uh, my friend Elizabeth Urbanovitz about that. So just a few minutes here and later in the show. We're going to be talking about the ever so growing in popularity issue of the Enneagram. Yes, I am an eight. I am a strong eight. (laughs) And we're going to hear all uh, all about it. Yes. I don't know. I, I don't know what I am. I haven't taken the assessment. I would think you're probably a two. A
0: two? Yeah. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> I just gave a number. I just, I just gave a number. I, yeah, I only basically know about me. The eight.
1: <laughs> oh, oh, that's terrific. We'll get oh. Emily on here and she yes, can talk about. She'll give it all the lowdown. Uh, what? It, what are you? Like a two? A three? You're a two? Oh, Emily and I are just alike. We're probably a two. Oh, she says no. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> not 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 even close. Okay. And then uh, later in the show, we're gonna do the uh tweet of the week it's gonna get real yeah it will be kind of hit be. the fan this week yes it did
0: yes it did <laughs> so more than gonna, once
1: we're gonna talk about that so let's talk first about training the next generation to meet the cultural challenges of our times let's get my friend elizabeth urbanovitz on here Whoop on the magic screen there she is hello elizabeth hello hi <laughs> Glad to have you here. We really appreciate you taking some time and having a hot date with us on a Saturday night. Oh, this is my fave.
2: Thanks so much.
1: (laughs) Well, we're glad to have you here and um, maybe just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in teaching kids about worldviews. Yeah,
2: well, this all started when I was teaching elementary students in a Christian school, and I noticed that they came from great Christian homes. I was the one giving them a biblical education all day long, but they were rapidly absorbing ideas from the culture that didn't align with Christianity. And so I started looking for what I could do to actually get them critically thinking about what is true and how do we know that we can really trust the Bible. And I couldn't find anything that was developed for the elementary level that was really theologically and philosophically sound and then also educationally sound as well that was really going to transform the way that they thought. So I started creating lessons for the students in my classroom and my baseline goal is I just wanted them to think when they watch TV or they picked up a phone or turned on YouTube and that happened. Um, Parents were calling me and saying hey my son wants to pause family movie night and evaluate the character's worldview and that's great but I don't really know how to do this. Can you help me do this. Um, but what I didn't expect was that the kids are really going to take hold of their education because all of a sudden they realized that not everything that they encounter is true and that they have a responsibility for really critically evaluating every idea that comes their way. So when word got out what I was doing, people started contacting me from all over the country asking how they could get their hands on what I created. And at the time, I said, I don't have anything for you. I just have some lessons I created for my students. Um, but eventually that kept happening year after year, which is why I stepped back from teaching to get a master's degree in Christian apologetics and to create materials that others can use with kids. So that's just a brief snippet of how that started.
0: I think it's awesome. Um, I have many thoughts. I have done children's ministry for a number of years and Looking through your curriculum, I was so impressed. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is so thorough. It's so in-depth. And yet it's so simple that a child can so easily grasp what's happening. I love the language. Yeah, I just I couldn't really say enough about it. But um, I do have a question. Can you bring some definition around the, wor- the word worldview? Um, when we talk about a Christian worldview, what are we talking about specifically for people who may not know?
2: That's a great question to start off with because a lot of times words like like worldview just become buzzwords and we lose the definition and what are we really talking about? So that's a great question to start off with. And whenever I'm talking even with adults just about definitions of terms, I think it's always helpful even just to break it down into how easy it would be for a child to understand it. So when I'm talking with kids about what a worldview is, uh, I say that it's like a mental map of what we believe is true about life and the world around us. So it's not like a physical map that we have in front of us, but something that we believe in our minds. And these beliefs affect all of the thoughts that we think, the words that we say, and the things that we do. So that's a really basic definition of worldview.
0: And what would be like some practical examples just in everyday life of how we see worldviews playing out?
2: Well, worldviews, you know, they're the big questions that every, everybody has to answer, such as what is truth or, or what is really real or, what you know, how can I tell right from wrong? And so the decisions that we make every day really betray what our worldview is um, how we make decisions. Are we making decisions, you know, moral choices based on what's best for me, or do we actually think that there's some moral law that's higher than us? Do we um, do we think that there is such a thing as? Tr- is it just changing from person to person? Now, sometimes we might say something that we think is our worldview, but then our actions actually betray that we believe something different. I just recently had a conversation with someone who was arguing and saying that, you know, morals don't exist, that, you know, we're just bodies. There's nothing spiritual or metaphysical about us. So what we think are right and wrong are just evolutionary instincts. You know, there really is no such thing. And then after this, later in the conversation, I told her how somebody had recently backed into my car and just sped off without leaving a note. And she was like, that's terrible. How dare they do that? That is the wrong thing to do. And I was like, well, yes, I would agree with that. But according to your worldview, you know, that's, there's no such thing as absolute right and wrong. So sometimes we might say one thing, but actually really believe another thing.
0: Now, when I think some parents could say, you know, while kids are young, just let them be kids and we'll sort all that out later. Why would you say it's so important to teach kids about their worldview the earlier, the better?
2: Well, when we think about worldview, our worldview is always being formed, whether we're doing it directly you know, and and directly teaching others, our children about that, or whether it's just indirect. And especially in today's day and age, just in the information age, our children are exposed to so many competing ideas, and frequently in the Christian community, we wait until our children are in high school or in college before we actually have them critically think through these different categories and what we believe is true and how we know it's true, or things that that are not true and how we know they're not true. And if we wait until they're teenagers or young adults, we've lost so much time because critical thinking skills start to develop when kids are eight, nine or 10 years of age, really just depending on their development. And so if we're let's say 15 years old, we've lost at least five years. And therefore, in our instruction, so much of what we're doing has to be reformative in nature, just tearing down faulty ways of thinking and then building up from there. Where, when, If we can start when those critical thinking skills are just starting to develop, we can be formative in our instruction
1: rather than reformative. I'm so glad you brought that up, Elizabeth, because um, at, at my job, I work at a ministry where we interact with a lot of people who, what I call deconvert um, at some point in their life. And often high school or college, they start to see challenges or what they perceive to be contradictions to their worldview. And then they, they walk away from their faith, they deconvert. And then through the ministry that, that I work for, they um, sometimes will come back to their faith later in life. And they're like, where was this 20 years ago? I lost 20 years of my life. I wish somebody would have talked to me about it. And I think that it's important um, for us to understand. And I, I, I don't like getting the heartbreaking letters from parents who are already in the midst of their child's faith crisis. Um, it's almost too late by then. You have to do kind of some more triage types of uh faith-saving measures, which sometimes work and sometimes don't, but if you, if you move the goal backward a little bit and you start earlier, what kind of fruit have you seen from, from that approach? Well,
2: I've seen that kids are capable of a lot more than we give them credit for. That's that when we just teach them how to think well they're able to take those skills and use them in every other area of life um so question that i did really started to transform just kids academic careers that they were applying what they were learning in mathematics and in history and in science, um, in all subjects. But then, um, just on a really practical level, you mentioned, you know, kids walking away from the faith. And several years ago, I had the mom of one of my former students. She reached out to me just through a text message and said that her daughter was, you know, starting to doubt God's existence. And could I be praying for her? And I said, of course, can I also meet up with her for ice cream? And so we met up and we were talking Talking for a while, and then I said, "Hey, you know, I hear that you know you're starting to have some questions about whether or not God exists. Tell me more about this." And she kind of hung her head, you know, a little embarrassed, and said, "Yeah, well, you know, um, I'm just not sure that I believe that this is true. Like, I pray all the time, and it just doesn't seem like God is there. And I'm just thinking, you know, maybe this is just what I was taught my whole life." And I said well, this is actually really exciting. And she looked at me like I had five heads. And I said, you know, you're going to start to really critically think through what you believe. And I said, you know, if if you decide that you don't think that God exists, that you're not just going to take the Christian worldview and throw it aside, you're going to have another worldview. You know, you won't have no worldview. And I said, you know, as you think through, you know, what we've, what we learned when you were taking this class with me, what are some big questions that every worldview has to answer? And so she went through and started talking about questions a worldview has to answer. And then I said, you know, what are some ways that different worldviews answer these questions? And so she went through and she's thinking through it and talking through it and just chatting for a while. And all of a sudden she goes, I said, what? And she said, oh my goodness, the answers to these questions, they don't make sense when you take God out of the picture. Like it's going to take more blind faith for me to believe that God doesn't exist than that he does. So I might not feel like he's there and he's, around us is pointing to him. I said, isn't that interesting? Now, this isn't the end of her faith journey or her questions. You know, it's, it's not the end for any of us, but it's just exciting to see that when kids are trained at a young age to actually think through these deep questions, that when they have other questions or their emotions don't line up with reality, they'll have the tools that they need to really think through what is true and how do we know that?
0: Yes, I could not agree more. Now, coming from the children's ministry perspective or like that lens, how do you see worldviews being taught in children's ministry today? Or like, do you see it? Do you not? Is it like they're like a big gap? So so we're talking
1: about like the local church, the local church. Yeah. Yeah. Sunday school context. Okay. Yes.
2: So, I mean, I think that it it depends on churches and I, you know, I haven't been to every church, so I can't speak for the church at large. What I see coming out as far as curriculum that's available that, uh, that churches are frequently using, there are curriculum that really sets the stage for helping our kids understand a biblical worldview and then curriculum that, that detracts from that. Um, just, overarching when we think of just the framework of children's ministry, one thing that I have found is that a lot of times we view children's ministry more in forms of entertainment than education. And now we want our kids' ministries to be fun. We want them to be engaging. But a lot of times we just present kids with information and then do a snack and a craft or a game. And we don't actually have any like real goals for them. We don't have one essential question that we are wanting them to answer by the time that they're done with this lesson. So that's one weakness I found. I have been encouraged recently um, just by some curriculum that's really setting kids up to start to understand a biblical worldview. For example, the gospel project from Lifeway does a really great job of helping kids Now we as the church have to take the next step and take what they've learned in their Bible instruction and then help them see how that applies to a biblical worldview. So basically turning orthodoxy into orthopraxy. Um, Then there's some things, uh, there's other materials that I've seen that have been somewhat discouraging. There's one curriculum I wasn't familiar with, but this past year, a lot of churches that used foundation, they told me that they had used this curriculum the previous year and they were wanting to move to foundation to get away from this. So I did some research. And I was just really discouraged because it's a pretty popular curriculum and now I've never taught it, but in the research I've done, you know, there. Their primary goal that they say on their website is to raise kids who make wiser choices. And I thought, really? Like we just want our kids to make wiser moral choices. And then all of the lessons in there have some kind of like moralistic lesson. And that and that's really setting our kids up to view Christianity as just a list of do's and don't
1: do's rather than an entire worldview that speaks to all of life. I'm so glad you brought that up because. Monique and I have had many conversations on our walks around the neighborhood about this very issue. And uh, when she first, when we were first kind of getting to know each other, I was asking her opinion about what's happening in a lot of children's ministries. She's been a children's pastor at a few churches. And, and I said, you know, my perception of what's happening in a lot of kid ministries is that um, it, what we're really teaching children is just how to be nice how to share Mm -hmm. and you know, it's, it's really kind of secular humanism with Jesus on top of it. And I don't see it as a worldview construct and really teaching kids like, no, this is a, this is a whole life view that you have to know how to answer these big questions. And it's been kind of a revelation, for Monique, like I don't know if she ever heard the word worldview before she came. To of course live with us. I did,
0: <laughs> of course I did. But
1: <laughs> I um
0: I also did not necessarily apply apologetics the way that I wish I would have in my time in children's ministry or seen the real benefit of that in helping to frame their worldview.
1: Right. Okay. She's well, going well, mean, to she's going to show me out like. late. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think it's a real paradigm shift for us just because a lot of times in kids ministries, we just, you know, kind of are going along with what's been there. You know, even my mom is the director of the children's program at the church where I grew up and my mom is the most amazing woman that I know. And she's a great educator. She has a teaching background. You know, she has a distinctly biblical worldview. But once I got into this, um, you know, this realm of creating curriculum for churches, there were some times where my mom was like, you know, I never actually thought of that. You know, like I never actually thought of like teaching this as an entire worldview or bringing, you know, sound educational strategies into the Sunday school or children's church classroom. So just uh, as encouragement, Monique, I think it's just a big paradigm shift that we need. You're not alone. Thank
0: you. <laughs> but you know what? A couple of weeks ago on the show, we spoke about, um, how many pastors aren't going to seminary like the decline in seminary and so i'm wondering if what we see throughout the church all the way down into kids ministry is more of a reflection of that like apologetics isn't really going forward from the pulpit to the adult parishioners and you know you pull your sunday school people and your children's ministry people from the the pews usually and so if that's the case are we not giving Um, apologetics to our kids and that that worldview framework to our kids because of that. Right. Just my thoughts.
1: So let's when I know we have a lot of parents watching the show right now, Elizabeth, Um, let's talk a little bit about some practicalities, like what could be some some ways that parents could weave in worldview conversations just while they're driving in their car with their kids or When they're shopping in the store, like what are some everyday examples of some conversations we could have with our kids as we go along? Well, with those examples of
2: driving in the car or being at the grocery store, I mean, there are worldview statements all around us, you know, something like you deserve this or, you know, like this is healthy for you, (laughs) Um, different statements like that. We can use those as great opportunities to ask our kids questions, Um, you know, like, for example, like you deserve this, you know, asking our kids, you know, do we deserve that? If if we do, why or why not? What is it about us as humans that would either make us deserve that or make us not deserve that? Or when we're looking at, you know, like a food label that says, you know, like this is healthy, like talking about um, the difference even between like an objective truth claim, a truth claim that's outside of us or a subjective truth claim, you know, something that's just based on preference or personal opinion. So training our kids to see the differences between those, um, that this, um, these organic moments that come up, they're really, really necessary. And that's, you know, the life on life discipleship and worldview training that's really necessary. One thing I would argue is this is what I, I think, um, we're missing a lot of times actually being intentional at sitting down and training our kids so that when those organic conversations come up, they're prepared for it. And I usually people about think about a math class and if a parent came and teacher and said, you know, what's, what's going on in math? And the teacher said, oh, you know, we just love math in this classroom and we love math so much. We let it happen organically. You know, it happens when we're getting ready for the day. It happens when we're walking through the hallways. It happens when the kids are sitting down at lunch. You know, the parent is going to either go to the principal or pull their child out of that classroom because we know if we just save math instruction for the organic moments, like, yes, we want our kids to understand how math applies to everyday life, but they're gonna have huge gaps in their mathematic understanding. And so I would say that the same is true for worldview. If the formation of our child's worldview is this important, we need to have those organic everyday conversations, but we also need to be systematic in, okay, what are the things my child actually needs to know And when are we going to teach it to them? So that then when these organic moments come up, they're really prepared to have these conversations and see how what we've been learning applies in everyday life.
1: That is a really good answer. I I really appreciate that, Elizabeth. Um, Let's talk about your curriculum and let's talk a little bit. Tell us about it. I've got a graphic here from your website about it. So tell us. Who it's for what ages it's for and all that sort of thing
2: uh so this curriculum is designed to be used with 8 to 12 year olds and we purposely designed the materials so that they could be flexible, that they could be implemented in a children's ministry setting, in a Christian school, in a homeschool setting, or we even have a number of families that send their kids to public school, but just really want to train them to think critically. So they go through these materials once a week with their kids, either after school or on a Saturday. And so what we do is we look at five. Has to answer. So we look at what is truth. What should I worship? how did life begin? Who am I? And how can I tell right from wrong? And what we do is the first thing we just have the kids explore, like what do we find in life and the world around us? What clues do we find about this question? A lot of times we're even defining the terms, like what does it mean for something to be true? Is it important to know the truth? How can I know the truth? Is the truth true for everyone? Then we have the kids dive into scripture and look at what has God revealed about this topic. And then we have them look at the beliefs of four competing worldviews in our society. And we have them compare and contrast those beliefs and then evaluate which ones actually line up with reality because we want them to be A, aware that there are these competing ideas in our society. Then we want them to see, you know, every worldview has little nuggets of truth in it. You know, it's not like this worldview has no truth in it. But we want them to walk away understanding that Christianity provides the best explanation for reality, that it's the only worldview that consistently lines up with what we find is real. And so we have lesson plans for the teachers to use um, and workbooks for the students. And then we also have videos because. Worldview, you know, is this concept that a lot of times we as adults haven't been trained in and it can be really intimidating to teach something that we don't feel comfortable with. I know when I was in the classroom, anytime we had a new curriculum that I didn't know very well, it'd be super intimidating because it's like, what if the kids ask a question and I don't know how to answer it? So we have a video for the adults just to break down, what is this concept? Why is it important? What are typical questions kids might ask? And then videos where we actually teach the content to the kids. So the adults are still involved, but they don't have the burden of actually
1: teaching the material to the children. So that's just really quick <laughs> That's overview. good. I want to make sure we give your website, we've been showing it up on the screen, but I want to make sure our podcast listeners know what your website is. So it's foundationworldview.com and they can get connected there. They can, uh, I saw on the website, they can download a sample lesson and they can kind of get a feel for what it's about and what you're going to cover. So if people want to get connected and find out more about what you're doing there, they can go to foundationworldview.com. And you're on Twitter, I saw, and uh, you're also frequenting some uh, conferences. Um, I think you were out here for the CHIA conference, weren't you?
2: Yes, we just but, ended our homeschool conference season and Christian school conference. Is yeah,
1: ready. that's a tough life. I've, I've lived that life uh so i i wish you well and success and do you think you would um write an, another curriculum are you looking down the line at the future or what are you thinking perhaps a curriculum for adults <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, the goal is to continue creating materials for children that all adults can learn alongside. <laughs> um, and that those who have gone through the curriculum for the first year, that's what they're asking us. They're like, okay, this was great. Our kids are thinking in the right direction. Now what do we do? What's so, the next step? Yes. Yes. So the goal is within the next two years, we'll have a second installment of the curriculum. Um, So not ready to reveal exactly what that will look like yet, but stay tuned because it is coming.
1: Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing more of your work. And I met Elizabeth through uh, my friends at Women in Apologetics, and her curriculum has actually been featured as the kids program during the Women in Apologetics conference And so it's it's been a a wonderful kind of unique feature of the Women in Apologetics Conference that the kids aren't just getting childcare, babysitting. They're actually learning, too, which is pretty cool. So um, we are I'm just so excited to watch your ministry grow and to see what the future holds for you, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for all your work. Thank you very much.
2: Oh, well, thank you for the encouragement and thanks so much for having me on. It's been fun chatting with you. Oh,
1: good. Well, thank you so much. Okay, that was great.
0: That was her curriculum is phenomenal.
1: And like I want people really to is. know like what an endorsement that is because you're, you're very discerning and careful about yeah. curriculum and, and sometimes you feel like children's curriculum isn't very well done or it, it wasn't really written by people who actually have ever talked to children There's that. So, yeah. Or who get
0: that kids can do other things aside from have fun. Like, like I I really appreciated what she said about um, how a lot of times we look at children's ministry like it should be fun and that kids need to be having fun. And I don't know that I agree with that all the time. I think that fun is kind of relative. And, you know, fun for me is different than fun for you. And so when we can really zero in on, yes, we, we, we want it to be engaging. We want you, we don't want you to sit here and like pick your toes, but (laughs) that we are being extremely deliberate in what we're teaching them and that they're walking away with knowledge. I think that's super important. Not just that I walked away with a cool craft, a cool craft can't come with it or maybe it doesn't, but um, what am I, or how am I preparing you for when you're 15?
1: Well, I think that Elizabeth's point, of having that or the right belief the orthodoxy ought to lead to the orthopraxy the mm-hmm. the the living out our faith in a practical way but so much of the curriculum that i see these days for kids is largely about the orthopraxy side here's what you do and it leaves out the orthodoxy side mm-hmm. of of wh- what we believe the actual content yeah and why we believe it and Uh, We talked with our friend Mike Gurney some weeks ago about biblical literacy. I think that this is sort of an extension of that conversation in some ways. Yeah,
0: that's kind of what I was trying to say of like, hey, if people are not going to seminary and being taught that way, but yet they're the ones who are teaching our leaders Mm -hmm. and teaching the adults, then I wonder if that's a reflection in children's ministry. I'm not sure. I just wonder.
1: Just asking the question of, is that trickling down? Is that impact? Um, And what I've seen is that 20, 25 years ago when I was teaching university, biblical literacy was at a certain level. And like Mike Gurney said, it has plummeted you can't you can't just take it for granted that even kids who have grown up in the church um know some of the basics Mm -hmm. and so we need more of these conversations and to keep asking more questions about what we're going to do for our kids and how we're going to train them living in the middle of a hostile culture so good conversation
0: it really was good yeah it really was but i know that waiting until they're 15 is too late it's too late Yes. yes Yes. all right so On to the next thing. Are you ready? And now this. All right. The Enneagram. Oh, boy. Yes. You do not like the Enneagram is is what I I take away. Let's
1: say I'm an Enneagram skeptic. Okay. Okay. So, all right. Here's what I've noticed. Every time I make a post about the Enneagram, it gets like over a thousand views on my Facebook page. Like people just flock to those posts. And I keep posting the same article over and over again, but I'm like, they've seen this already, but, uh, the Enneagram. Oh, well, Mr. Bob wants to know what the Enneagram is. So why don't you explain that since you've taken the test and I have, well, first of all, there was a, I was going to say, um, this is like a really like we haven't, this is so disorganized. All right, so there is this crazy rise in evangelicalism of the Enneagram. In fact, there was a local church recently, just locally here, a huge megachurch. If I said the name, people would know who it is. But um, they did a whole sermon series on the Enneagram and all of the, uh, the numbers, the types. I think I got a, a little graphic here with that. Yeah. No, not that. Okay. This one. That one. So the sermon series called you and there was all the different numbers on the Enneagram. And apparently this is a way of organizing people. Mm -hmm. It's like the Myers Briggs. Are you an introvert extrovert? Are you a sensing judging, whatever? It's just a different system. ENFJ. (laughs) I think
0: think that's what I am. I'm the the
1: bossy one, whatever that is.
0: (laughs) Well, I, I think more than just like some kind of categorical chart,
1: yeah, so let's it, go to the chart.
0: It also
1: it explains
0: is. different parts of people's personality.
1: So if you're a one, you're a, a reformer or a perfectionist. Okay. You're a, a number two, Emily. She's a helper, caretaker. What are you? You're like an eight? I am the eight. I am strong eight. The leader challenger. That sounds about right.
0: That is. I am all eight. Like every every description on the eight, I am like, yes, it's like, and this is what's a little weird and scary about it. When I think about it is that it, the way it described people who are eights, I was like, oh my dang. It described me <laughs> to mean. the T. Like, it knew me. Is there like a nacho eater one? Is that maybe number 10? Or... No? N- no, there no. isn't a nacho eater one. But... <laughs> you have to take the test. See, oh, so okay. you take the test. And the te- there's all these random questions, and these so questions will lead to... It's an assessment. And yeah, it's an assessment. And the questions will lead you to a number that they
1: say this is, you know, the number that you are. Okay, I was saying hi to Juwad. Oh, hi, Juad <laughs> he, he just came on. So he was saying hi to us. Uh, so, yeah, so... Um,
0: it's it, a personality it's assessment. Ca-
1: it's yes. a kind of personality assessment, but there's also this... I, I would characterize it like soulish aspect to it of talking about like your motivations, your emotions, how you organize your thought life and, and even some spiritual components. All you know.
0: the good in you and all the not so good in you.
1: Shadow sides. Yes. Is that what they call it? So um, what do you think the attraction is for the Enneagram for, for Christians? Because it's certainly growing in popularity. I think that there is,
0: well, part of it is the the wanting to connect. Like if I know that you are a four, I can read about the fours and understand how eights and fours work together. I also think that it allows me to look at myself and figure out, okay, these are the areas that I really struggle in. Why am I struggling and what can I do to to overcome, you know, some of those, those struggles. Uh, I'm not sure why it's taking off in churches. I know that there are quite a few Christian books now written about the Enneagram. Can so, we more
1: accurately say they are books by Christian publishers? I don't know if they're necessarily Christian books.
0: Well, I think that the writers of the books are Christian.
1: I, I don't know. I mean, I think that some of them that's debatable, but I think that like the big one is Richard Rohr. Uh, it is, uh, he's some kind of Franciscan monk. Uh, the Catholics have been debating the Enneagram for a few decades. And there's, I think that there's a lot of conversation about, does it have Christian roots, which I think is a highly debatable point, mm-hmm. um, whether it has Christian roots or not. Um, it's sort of, if you go on the, um, official Enneagram Institute website, um, there's really nothing distinctly Christian about their description. They just say it's like from ancient texts. And, but it, it really comes out of kind of this esoteric form of Islam uh, called Sufism. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the main people that, are, that were kind of the progenitors of it were all sort of involved in one way or the another in the occult. Um, and one of the, the main people who came up with the number, the, the titles and kind of the different differentiations, his claim is that he got it, uh, from, um, some channeling of, with the angel Gabriel and, uh, his spirit, um, Megatron or Murgatroyd or something, um, that I looked up, no, uh, uh metroton i knew it was something like that um some spirit archangel metroton is where he got the the numbers so i mean some some of this stuff just really to me smacks of you the know occult. the occult some yes. evil spirits in the mix um so, so this is part of what makes me kind of an enneagram skeptic i'm gonna call myself
0: but my question to you here is the same that i asked Earlier this week is like, is there nothing redemptive about it? Because this is what I see in some of the books that have been written about, like not. Yeah, I I would say books from authors who profess to be Christian. Sure. That there is some redemptive value to it in understanding how humanity works, how we work together.
1: Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. I just wish we would stop saying that it's Christian. Like, if I accomplish nothing else in this segment, I just really want people to stop saying it's Christian. Because it's not. It, it's just not. Like, the historic origins are clearly, you can go on Wikipedia. Like, I'm not exaggerating at all that it's has occultic origins. No, so, I, I'm not disagreeing yeah, with that. I, I just, I, it just bothers me that people keep saying that it's Christian. Like, it's cool. I mean, because I haven't established anything saying it's occultic. Um, other than maybe like, because just because the origin of something doesn't mean it's false. Mm -hmm. Um, like astronomy originally, if you go back to the ancient world came out of astrology, Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean astrology is wrong or astronomy is wrong. Um, there, so you don't want to commit, uh, what is that called, Emily? Uh, which fallacy is that? The The genetic fallacy. Um, so just because it, it has occultic origins or was came about by occult, occultic people who believe in the occult doesn't automatically mean it's wrong. I just really want us to stop saying it's Christian. That's mm-hmm. that's my first point. My second point is that um, I think. It, it, to my knowledge, it, at most, we could say this is kind of a form of pseudoscience, Like it hasn't been validated. Mm -hmm. Like I I looked in vain this week for a peer reviewed study that showed that the Enneagram um, organizations or categories had some kind of psychological or sociological study behind it, behind the validity of it. So I think, you know, that would be my second point. Is that at best it's some kind of pseudoscience, um, similar to the Myers Briggs about how we organize people. It's basically based on observations. People kind of categorize this way. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's it, it's like okay, well if that's helpful to you, great, yay, yay for you. Well, it's I'm like an eight
0: and it's I, like the strengths finder. Or
1: yeah, it's like the strengths finder. Like yay, okay. I got the strength of uh strategic is number one, you know, yay, for me.
0: I'm intellect, number one.
1: <laughs> okay. And in
0: case you wanted to know that at home, why not? Yeah.
1: So I, I mean, there's nothing wrong with it per se, in terms of observing patterns of how people relate to the world. I think that my only concern with it um, is that what I see happening that is that a lot of Christians are using it almost as like a substitute for the Holy spirit. How so? So, uh, my friend who doesn't want me to use her name, (laughs) I just, I'm trying to remember has a, had a great, uh, post on Instagram. And I would say that, uh, she's 19 and she actually went and listened to the sermon series. Uh, she's a sociology major at a university and had been exposed to the Enneagram. And so she started researching it. She's a real research hound. And so I wanted to read her Instagram post here. She says, here's some Tuesday morning spaghetti for you. If you're a believer, your identity is not a six or a three or a five or a nine or whatever other Enneagram number. You are uniquely crafted, valuable individual from birth and a new creation in Christ. I'm not valuable because I empathize well or put others first, nor am I destined to be burned out or even justified in my inability because I'm a two. Um, I am a redeemed and adopted child of God almighty. I'm not valuable or worthy or me because of what I do or innately feel, but rather what Christ has and continues to do in me. I don't struggle with saying no because I'm a two, but because I'm a prideful sinner who doubts the goodness and ability of God to be in control as I try to put out fires and restore people and carry the weight of a broken world on my own strength. I'm a prideful sinner learning to rest not to grow my own psychological potential or social value, but in order to worship the giver of complex emotions and the ability to work anyways. Using the Enneagram test as a personality type or trait classification is not inherently evil or harmful or whatever. But I have a possibly unfounded, she says, theory that the current, uh, that the current, oh, I. And growing Enneagram hype. Hype. Yes, may easily easily become become a a catalyst, catalyst. pushing us over the line past simple self. Yeah, uh, assessment toward misplaced identity and as a concerned member of the church, that makes my heart hurt. I thought this was a very thoughtful post and it really uh, put my it made me put my thinking cap on about it because I think she's on to something here because what I hear people saying is, well, um, I can't share my faith because I'm a two. Well, God doesn't care that you're a two. I mean, maybe you could say that you have certain propensities a certain way, but you're still going to have to figure out how to live out Matthew 28, 19, mm-hmm. y- you know, even though you're a two and whether if you're an eight, and people give you feedback that you're kind of pushy. You're still going to have to figure out how to love your neighbor in a way that makes sense to them. Um, the, the Enneagram can't help us get out of, I think, um, the hard task of spiritual formation. And what's interesting to me is that I'm seeing it have so much play with very well-meaning Christians. But it's like, well, how does this work with the power of the Holy Spirit to change and transform us to the image of Christ. My end goal is not to become more me. It's not to become more in touch with my essence. My end goal is to become more conformed to the image of Christ. That's not a number. And so sowing into my essential self is, is not my end goal. So that's just kind of my thought. What, what are you thinking about
0: that? Well, I opened my Facebook and like literally the first thing and it's just right here. I'm not making it up. Um, it says I found the Enneagram has been a helpful presence tool on how to connect with God and walk with him in greater measure. And so I just think,
1: you know, maybe but that's so subjective. I mean, I could say that going to a 12 step program helped me walk with God more. That's it, 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 so subjective.
0: But I wonder for some people, is that not why we call it subjective? Because that's what helps and works for them.
1: I don't know. I, I just think that what I see happening in so many churches is that um, it, it's becoming more about knowing your numbers, which, if I'm being candid, it kind of strikes me as a form of Christian astrology, mm-hmm. than about the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And when we start shifting our words to something worldly, something happens inside of us. Like we can't go through that shift and start using different words than the Bible uses without it starting to veer us off in another direction. And it might seem subtle at Mm -hmm. first. It might seem like, well, yeah, the God's using this, this analytical tool and, and helping me have insight about myself. But, you know, you go along a few a few years into that, and you've used these words from this other paradigm long enough, that becomes your primary paradigm. And it's no longer looking at the historic Christian tradition the thousands of years of this is how we have engaged in the project of sanctification. Like, why do we need a new project? Why do we need a new way of doing this? Why can't we just be more rigorous and return to what has historically worked and why do we need to engage in the Enneagram? Maybe we, what if, what if we actually took all of that, that energy that's being put into the Enneagram and actually started teaching a historic Christian view of spiritual formation and teaching people how to kill their flesh how to say no to their gluttony, how to um, do the hard work of killing the deeds of the flesh and cultivating the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our souls. And, and I, I just feel like it's shifting the conversation into using words that aren't even biblical anymore and creating a new set of goals and a new set of categories. And I'm just wondering where, where is that going to lead in a few years? hopefully it'll be a fad it'll just bear, it'll just burn out this is my hope this is why i'm a skeptic you're a skeptic
0: and i'm a sympathizer so yes. <laughs> that's okay that's what
1: makes the world go around
0: yes yes i don't know i um i have found it useful i think when i and i haven't like di- delved delve because you can get into i haven't gone and layers deep it. into it but what i did read and when i first um Like took the test and things like that. I found it extremely helpful, even in just understanding me more. And like, oh yeah, this is this, and um, you know, what can I do or what? What?
1: But what's the goal of that? Like, what's the goal of knowing yourself more? I think. Like, why do I need to know myself? Because you don't want to be unaware, do you? But but I don't see that in scripture as a paradigm. This is what I mean. Is that I don't see in scripture anywhere that says, like, knowing myself is a virtue. I see a lot of scriptures that tell me about killing my flesh and doing things that are against my nature, like loving my enemies and praying for those who persecute me. Mm -hmm. But I don't see any scriptures that tell me I need to know myself better and that that's somehow a virtue. I don't know, because then I'm like, well, how do I know what to kill if I don't know myself? But I don't think you need to know yourself. Because then you, what you're saying is that Christians for thousands of years who haven't known themselves and, ha- and haven't had finder tests or the Myers-Briggs or any of these other tools, it's, somehow they weren't engaged in a, in a project of, of holiness because they didn't know themselves.
0: Maybe they didn't. They just had different tools. I don't, I just, I don't know.
1: I don't think I'm buying the, the line. You're not, that, you're that, not that, eating the soup I'm serving. No, I'm just not because... I can't find a scripture that says I have to know myself. Well, isn't there a passage where if some are leaders, then take it seriously? If some have the gifts of helping, you know, so it's like knowing what your strengths are. Knowing what my spiritual gifts are. Yeah, but then Mm -hmm. knowing what your strengths are. So then maybe this might help you kind of target more. Oh, I might have these certain strengths and have more of this spiritual gifting. Maybe that might be Something Maybe, helpful. but but is there any, like, I just wonder, what is the trade-off that we're making by introducing foreign nomenclature? Like, the spiritual, the gifts of the Spirit outlined in, in Romans and 1 Corinthians, like, there's certain gifts of the Spirit. So why not talk more about that in the church? Like, we hardly ever even talk about that helping people walk in their spiritual gifts or even knowing what their spiritual gifts are. But we're really spending a lot of energy and resources talking about the Enneagram and identifying each other and then stating our limitations about what we can and cannot do. And then it almost becomes like my friend said in the post almost becomes like this pseudo identity of I'm this. No, you're not. You're not that you're not a nine. No, I'm not a nine. You're not a nine, not a nine, not an eight. You're not any number. You're a child of the Most High God. You're forgiven. You're loved. You're holy. You're sanctified. You're cleansed. You're forgiven. I mean, these are the things the Bible says about us. It doesn't tell us that we're a number, and it introduces this whole foreign vocabulary. Am I the only one who has concerns about this? Like, I just don't get it. I, I-
0: yeah, I don't, I, 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 I'm, I'm a work in progress. I'll admit that. So maybe I will get there. I think as of now, I personally have found it useful or helpful. Um, and can I agree that it does have, it did have an occultic beginning? Yes. Do I think that there potentially are redemptive, measures in it or could be used um today for good yeah i i, I kind of think so but who knows like a year from now i could be completely wrong and have to retract my statement
1: i just think i and again my position the point i'm making is not that it's necessarily demonic although i do think that studying the enneagram like some of the things i've seen on the enneagram institute website could lead you into deeper things it could become an open door for some people into a kind of a new age worldview and into some spiritual problems, but I don't think it automatically has to be that way. And that's not the argument that I'm making. Mm-hmm. The argument that I'm making is that it seems to be coming, becoming a fake identity for people. It, it, it's a form of identity theft. It attaches a label to us that God doesn't put on us. And, Wouldn't we be better served to have actual conversations about spiritual gifts and how to walk and exercise those, a concept that's actually in the Bible? Wouldn't we be better served to spend some energy talking about our identity in Christ, who we are in Christ, and how to reenact or recover some of the tools of the ancient church for spiritual formation? some things that are actually biblical and actually in our history, why do we have to borrow from the world? This is my question. Eh, I I can, you know,
0: I'll toy around with it, but I'll have to be honest and say, sounds like
1: Horoscopes. This is what one of our viewers is saying. She says, I love you, Monique, but I'm siding with Krista on this one. I've seen so many Enneagram posts that sound like horoscopes. I don't disagree with that. I, I do think that they, some of the, come on, some of them sound like horoscopes.
0: Some of them, okay. Some of them may sound like horoscopes, but I don't know. Like, I feel like if you're a Christian and use, I don't know. I just, it I, it doesn't strike me right. that way. That's we'll all see I'll what
1: say. the, We'll see what the comments are.
0: That's what I'll say. It doesn't strike me that way so strongly. But I am a work in progress. Hey. Hey.
1: The all
0: tweet right. of the week.
1: The tweet of the week. Here it is.
0: You know, one day we might just get to simple birds, <laughs> but right now we have thunder and lightning for the tweet of the week. Yeah. I can't even, can't even.
1: Okay. So my tweet of the week this yes. week was the world famous real Monique D. Hi. Okay. Read us the tweet.
0: I said race and unity are so important to me, but I've concluded that it's pointless to try and have a meaningful dialogue about it, to discuss history, to build unity, especially in the church. My heart is overwhelmed with sadness. God, there has to be another way. Okay. So call me extra, but, one, whenever day I wrote this, I we had had a hard conversation. People do not think that conversations about race and unity and reconciliation and all these buzzwords that we hear around the church are really easy. This is why people don't want to talk about it. Oh, it it's hard. It is hard. And, and you had met up I, for a, with an old friend for, for uh, coffee. Yes, I had another conversation with someone. Like two in one day. Two. Mm-hmm. It was a two for one. <laughs> a two in one. And by the end of the day, I was like done i
1: can't with this anymore
0: yeah and i was done and i'm like i cannot i will not and god please there has to be another way whatever way that is i don't want necessarily want to be a part of it two tixie
1: cups and (laughs) a string yeah whatever we got
0: just push it east and i'm gonna stay here and y'all can do that yeah but um
1: no i just i think the can we agree we have unity right now racial unity that race conversations are hard race conversations are
0: extremely hard and getting to a place of some type of agreement on just what is it that we are going to agree on can be extremely hard and so while we sit and we'll put out a video or talk about race on the show know that it is not from you know like hey why don't you talk about this and I'm gonna say that and we'll be happy together it is a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that go into it many times.
1: Well, and I think it's, you know, we, we put out a new video. This is a good opportunity to mention that we just put out a new video this week on yeah. racial unity and um, talking about the term whiteness and trying to understand what that term means in our culture and has come to mean as doesn't mean what mo- most people think it means. Um, but what people have to understand is that we got a real nice note from a viewer today. Saying, oh, this is how these conversations should, should happen. And I'm th- we're both sitting there reading the comment thinking, if she only knew.
0: Yeah. <laughs> if you only knew.
1: I mean, this is just messy, hard business. It is. And, and um, the, the videos that we're bringing out are the things that we've figured out. Not even figured out. That would be an overstatement. Like things that we feel like we can talk about in public in this current moment. Like, it's just a hard conversation because mm-hmm. talk about worldviews, like, yeah. you know, there's some moments where we're coming at it from completely different worldviews mm-hmm. and trying to hammer out, hey, how did I arrive at this belief? How did you arrive at this belief? Uh, is there any place we can find unity? How can we find our way together? I mean, it's, it's not a mystery to me why nobody wants to talk about race in our culture and why our culture is so divided.
0: It's, it's hard. It, it is that I do agree on. We, yes. Um, but if you saw the tweet and you were wondering what the heck that is, that's what happened. It was just a rough day and maybe I'll kind of lay off of my social media <laughs> with emotion days. Um, but, but one thing is, one thing, you know, is hey you get what you see <laughs> like, I, if that's what's going on, I'm just going to put it out there.
1: Well, I think the importance that we've learned is uh, having these conversations on social media is almost impossible. Yes. You have to have a relationship because there's something at stake that you want to go on with the person. You don't want to lose the relationship. Mm-hmm. And so there's a there's a motivation to, to try again. Um, and I think trying again and again and again is... Um, Seems like it's the only way forward. Yeah. If we're ever, we, we can't like have conferences about racial reconciliation and wrap it up in pretty words and think that we're going to arrive at some destination together. Yeah. Like that's never going to work. That's just the real on that.
0: I do agree. I do agree. It is only done in relationship and real relationship where you can say, I think you're wrong and somebody else can say back, well, I think you're wrong and we're going to hammer it out and know at the end of the day that you're both still loved and that the relationship is intact and you might take a a breather for a minute and come back, but research and
1: relationship. Yeah. Research. That's a great point. So it's hard. Uh, So Monique had a hard day. With a hard tweet, but we do want to encourage everyone to go check out our new video. Um, it's called something about whiteness.
0: Should, should the wh- church. Should Christians
1: guys... re, re, uh, denounce whiteness?
0: There it is. The church, Christians, you know who we are.
1: Whoever we are. Yes. Yeah. Um, oh. There's a comment. Oh, we have a few comments on oh. Facebook. Wow. All right. Christina Miller said, I read an article about the Enneagram. It really sums up what the problem is. The Enneagram is antithetical to the gospel and has people engaged in a different process to become mystics, to find their true self that God says we must die to. That was the point I was making. See, there's someone there. I found a friend. Somebody agreed with me. It's very exciting. If the gospel were preached with authority and the Bible consistently taught with clarity, The Enneagram religion would be anathema to those who are evangelical in its true meaning. We would be horrified at the idea of excavating the true self who was rightfully buried once for all. We're not looking for our true self. We are walking in the newness of life that we were given Mm -hmm. by God's grace. When we believe the gospel, That is a very much better way of saying what I was Mm -hmm. stumbling through is that, um, you know, it's, we don't I don't want to find my true self. Like my true self as a sinner apart from Christ is desperately wicked and my heart is deceitful. I, I really not wanting to find my true self. I want to find the self that Christ has proclaimed over me mm. and brought newness to me um, through his blood and that the fa- the words that the Father has pronounced over me because of my relationship to him. My concern with the Enneagram is it just introduces a completely different paradigm of holiness that is outside of scripture. So
0: I will uh, ponder that. Yes. Yeah, so, Thank you, Christina.
1: Yeah. Uh, our friend Laura Sanders says, I don't think it's wrong to understand differences in ourselves and others and how we can better relate to others. I'm just concerned about the occultic roots mm. of the Enneagram. And I, I think it's a, it's a fair point. Um, I think that, that we just have to be careful of not falling into the genetic fallacy. That simply because it had occultic roots doesn't automatically prove that it's, it's wrong or bad or dangerous, but um, it, it I definitely think that deeper Enneagram study from what I've seen on some of these websites could definitely lead, lead somebody down the path of the new age. Um, it's interconnected and interwoven with a lot of new age concepts and, if someone wasn't super discerning and diligent, I could see it easily degenerating into that.
0: Jennifer Scott says, Krista, yes, you're speaking exactly what's on my heart. Oh, good. Awesome.
1: Thanks, I Jennifer. I friend. Uh, our friend Diana says, all of my closest friends I've had strong disagreements with and moved forward anyway. It can be hard on our hearts, though. Sometimes that is for sure.
0: That is for sure.
1: So... All right. I think that's the show. It's sort of sh- short tonight. Yes. Uh, be sure, again, to check out the show notes on the website, uh, theologybomb.com slash all the things. i uh, will put to uh, put some links there, to some additional articles for everyone yeah. and some additional resources
0: the show notes are really good like they're fabulous for people who want to dig deeper and understand exactly what's being said and what's happening there's a ton of resources there so
1: and it's a great way to yeah. share it the share the show on social media because you're kind of sharing the whole package yeah so it's a it's a good it's a good piece to share uh the show is also available on spotify apple podcasts and google play so just search for theology mom. And you know, if you're making dinner or on the commute, can't catch the YouTube video that week, just go to the podcast. Now, I will say Apple is a little uh, slow at times about propagating the podcast. Sometimes I don't get the alert for a few days, but it does eventually arrive there. I check it every week. Connect with us on social media, send us your comments, your feedback. We love uh, hearing your comments about things and and what's blessing you, what you're learning, what you're being challenged by, what you disagree with. Yeah. Because um, sometimes, like, we talk about it and we're thinking, all right, yeah, that's a good point. We should bring that back up. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Follow me on Twitter, the real Monique D. And yes. maybe I'll tweet something this week. I'm pretty sure I will. <laughs> Hopefully.
1: <laughs> and definitely uh, share the show. Tell, yes. Tell a friend. And if the show is blessing you, just uh, let us, uh, let some friends know about it. Hopefully. Hopefully it was good. Hopefully it helped people. So, yeah. All right, everyone. Thank you and God bless. Bye. Bye.